0: Theophilus, also mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, 1 verse 3, is a Greek name. Uh, Theophilus means lover of God, literally. But this does not suggest that he was a made-up figure, as some have sometimes thought. It's a symbolic name and therefore it just stands for all Christians or something like this. These symbolic dedicatees were virtually unknown in the ancient world and it's likely that Theophilus was a real person, a person of status, whose name in the dedication of Luke's two-volume work of the Gospels and Acts, as we now call them, would have been useful uh, to the circulation of that work. The title Luke uses for Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus uh, in one three of Luke, suggests that he was a high official uh, in the service of the Roman Empire. And this position would have given Theophilus sufficient wealth to act as Luke's uh, literary patron, paying for the publication of his two-scroll history of Jesus and the early church. Luke opens his gospel by recording that since he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning in the style of a proper classical historian he decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught so it appears that Theophilus was an official of Rome who'd heard about Jesus, but who wanted more evidence. Now, if today's new atheists are to be believed, and they are not, Luke's response to Theophilus should have been to tell him to just have faith. Ignore history. After all, according to the late Christopher Hitchens, Religion just is a surrender of reason in favor of faith. Likewise, according to the philosopher A.C. Grayling, faith is a stance or an attitude of belief independent of, characteristically, in the countervailing face of, evidence. It is non rational at best, and it's probably irrational given that it involved deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite lack of evidence. Well, Luke's two-volume response to Theophilus demonstrates that far from requiring commitment despite lack of evidence, Christian faith can be a commitment because of evidence. Luke doesn't encourage Theophilus to ignore evidence far from it. He provides Theophilus with evidence, as he says, handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It's all too easy to assume that first century folk would have been easily duped or deluded into thinking that Jesus worked miracles and rose from the dead. To accept the atheist Walter Sinning Armstrong's prejudicial assumption that, as he says, most people at the time were gullible. However, historian Robert Grant, for example, points out that the late Hellenistic age was what he calls the least credulous period in antiquity. Graham Stanton observes that Greco-Roman writers were often reluctant to ascribe miraculous events to the gods, and they offered alternative explanations. Some writers were openly sceptical about miracles, such as Epicurus, Lucretius, Lucian. When it comes to the the general notion of resurrection, the Greco-Roman world of the first century was not an age of gullibility, but of cynicism and scepticism. The dominant school of Greek thought, Stoicism, rejected any idea of life beyond death. So did one of the two major Jewish schools of thought, the Sadducees. There was no shortage of eloquent and learned voices ready to do battle with any religion or philosophy that proposed as its central belief that a person came back from the dead. Luke reports that when Paul told the Areopagus council in Athens that Jesus had been appointed their judge and that God had given proof of this by raising him from the dead, they didn't just take him at his word. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, says Luke. That's uh, Acts 17:32. Little wonder, for as uh, according to Aeschylus, the Greek writer, at the foundation of the Areopagus Council, the god Apollo had pronounced, "When the dust has soaked up a person's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection." And despite this context, several Athenians became Christians, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul must have had some good arguments for his culturally outrageous claims. Read the Gospel accounts of how the disciples dealt with Jesus' execution how they dealt with the discovery of his empty tomb and the first reports from the women of his resurrection do they seem gullible? by no means with the crucifixion of Jesus the disciples saw their messianic dreams crash and burn they concluded that Jesus was a failed messiah A blasphemer hung upon a tree under the curse of God. Have a look at Deuteronomy 21-23. It took their experiences of encountering a resurrected Jesus to overturn this conclusion and to establish Jesus in their minds as so much more than just the Messiah. As New Testament scholar Jonathan Kendall reports, that numerous individuals, including Jesus' closest disciples, had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact, accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those that are most skeptical of Christianity and of the resurrection itself. What you make of the abundant evidence for the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus will mainly depend upon the assumptions and attitudes you bring with you to investigating the data. Luke doesn't speak in terms of literal proof in the logical or the mathematical sense of the term, But he does write that Jesus gave convincing evidences that he was alive. This proof was was pragmatically beyond a reasonable doubt to the eyewitnesses. If you have questions about these key issues or anything else in this sermon, I'd be delighted to talk with you uh, over a cup of coffee afterwards. And just when they had got their heads around Jesus' resurrection, the disciples had to get their heads around his ascension. The ascension is that event wherein Jesus miraculously signified to the disciples that he would no longer be meeting with them physically after his resurrection and a period of appearing to them during a period of 40 days, as Luke tells us. This event of the ascension is narrated twice by Luke in Luke 24 and in Acts 1 but it's also mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament for example it's mentioned in John 20:17 and in the letter 1 Timothy 3:16 thereby passing the historical criteria of having multiple independent witnesses to an event an atheist friend of mine once asked me am I expected to believe that Jesus' disciples saw him floating like a red balloon up, up, up and finally disappearing well why not That Jesus is obscured by a cloud and vanishes recalls the presence of God manifested as a cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus, reported in Luke 9. While Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain, Luke tells us a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Well, this time, when the cloud disappeared, the disciples found that they were alone. The philosopher Stephen T. Davis makes this comment. He says, Although I accept Luke's account of the ascension of Jesus as trustworthy... I see the event primarily as a symbolic act performed for the sake of the disciples. By means of it, God showed them that Jesus was henceforth to be apart from them in space and time. The ascension of Jesus was visibly symbolized for the disciples by a change in location. So it's not as if, as some atheists have ridiculed this story, it's not as if Jesus is still sort of going up and up and he gradually goes through the atmosphere and then he gets high enough that he gets into heaven. And this sort of literal heaven is up there idea. But it is symbolically representative of the idea that Jesus is not going to be literally with them, physically speaking. Now, no sooner had the disciples come to terms with Jesus' ascension then they had to come to terms with the fact that he had left them with both a mission and a divine source of power for that mission, the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, their mission is not to restore the kingdom of Israel as they had hoped. In other words, their job doesn't involve kicking Roman butt. On the other hand, Although they know that Jesus will return, they are not to kick back and wait for God to put the world to rights without them.
1: In other words,
0: they haven't been assigned to God's cheerleading squad. Rather, with the backing of the Holy Spirit, their mission is to expand the kingdom of God by bearing witness to Jesus. Jesus. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This mission is a continuation of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts 1.1 Jesus continues to act and to teach. But now he does so through human witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. To bear witness to Jesus is the calling of all Christians. Have a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, 1 Peter 3.15 for example. And it is a daunting prospect, isn't it? It's no coincidence that the book of Acts functions as a kind of how-to guide to explaining arguing for, expanding the kingdom of God by bearing witness to Jesus. The Christian philosopher Thomas V. Morris uh, recently recommended uh, five steps for building courage that I think uh, are very apposite here. Here are his five steps for building courage. He says, one, prepare for the challenge. Two, get support Three, use positive self-talk. That is, have the right self-image. Four, remind yourself what's at stake. And five, take action. Interestingly, Luke shows Jesus encouraging his disciples to take all five of these steps. First, Jesus gave his disciples experiences and information to prepare them for their mission after his suffering he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God we too can deliberately, intentionally gain experience and knowledge that prepares us to share the gospel of the kingdom with people A really good first step in this direction uh, would be to read Peter May's recent book, The Search for God and the Path to Persuasion. And if you track Pete May down, I'm sure he'll be willing to sell you a copy at a knockdown price. As a couple, or as a small group, home group, you could easily read a couple of chapters a week and then discuss the material together over the course of a term, say. Second, as well as having one another in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, have a look at Joel 2.28, Jesus gave the disciples support for their mission. He said, wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And we too can ask God to inspire, to embolden, to equip us through his spirit as we seek to expand his kingdom. Third, Jesus gave the disciples a positive self-image, a self-description rooted in their relationship with him. said, you will be my witnesses. We too need to adopt the right self-image And to realise with the Apostle Paul that we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making his appeal through us as his ambassadors. Fourth, Jesus reminded his disciples what was at stake in their mission. The expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. Said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And today this mission falls upon our shoulders as both a duty and a joy. For the kingdom of God is a thing of beauty. In Luke 13, we have this description from Jesus of the kingdom of God. It is like. Like a mustard seed, which a man took and plants in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perch in its branches. Finally, through his angels, Jesus called upon the disciples to get on with it and take action. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Never let it be said that angels don't have a sense of humour. Highfields Church puts on plenty of events and courses and so on to support our mission as ambassadors for Jesus. For example, we've already had uh, notice uh, of the uh, upcoming Highfield lecture next Sunday evening with Professor uh, Glyn Harrison. Why not pray about it? Show a friend a flyer? And say, My church is having this Christian psychologist doing a talk next Sunday on self image. Would you like to come along? Worst case scenario, they say, No thanks, and we'll have broken the ice about being a Christian in a nice way that grows your experience as a faithful ambassador. As Christ's ambassadors, we are called, it is our duty to be faithful. It's not our job, our duty to be successful it's our duty to be faithful On the other hand they might come Apologist Greg Kukul explains that an effective ambassador has three essential skills First an ambassador must have some basic knowledge of the character the mind, the purposes of his king. Secondly, this knowledge must be deployed in a skillful way. There's an element of wisdom, an artful diplomacy that makes his message persuasive. And finally, there's character. The kindness, the even-handedness and respect that the ambassador shows for those who differ can either make or break His message. So it's about speaking the truth in love, in an appropriate way and an appropriate time. Now we can all move past simply being daunted by the calling to expand the kingdom of God by being witnesses to Jesus, if we intentionally follow in the footsteps of the disciples and follow this path that Jesus calls them to. We can worship Jesus with our heads and hearts and hands by developing our knowledge and wisdom and character for his sake. We can remember that the Holy Spirit works in us and through us. We can see ourselves endowed with the authority and the dignity of being God's ambassadors on earth we can be caught up in a vision of what it means for the kingdom of God to grow in its beauty around us. And in the light of these things, we can take action. Thanks be to God.